Welcome to the Digiday Podcast. I'm Tim Peterson, Senior Media Editor at Digiday. Today I'm talking with Ben Smith, who became the media columnist at the New York Times after seven years as Editor-in-Chief of BuzzFeed. Since joining the Times, Ben has reported on sexual misconduct inside media companies and revolts within newsrooms, the decline of local news and the rise of Substack, and tech giants trying to be regulators and government officials trying to regulate them. Ben is also a former politics reporter and has been writing a lot about the intersection between politics and media, from President Donald Trump's relationships with Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg and CNN President Jeff Zucker, to a former BuzzFeed employee that participated in last week's assault on the Capitol. Ben, welcome to the podcast. Yeah, thank you for having me on. So, um, talking on January 12th. And I want to talk about, you know, start with your latest piece, which was about a former BuzzFeed employee who was among those that attacked the Capitol last week. Why did you decide to write this piece? Um, I mean, I think that I've been thinking a lot lately in general about the extent to which a lot of us who were kind of tinkering around on the Internet in the, you know, starting maybe in the early aughts, really, kind of in some sense, opened a kind of Pandora's box. Um, I think, you know, we were very eager to find ways around the gatekeepers. And and I think generally, you know, authentically believed that that was for the best. And, I, you know, and honestly, and, and a lot of it was, right? I mean, I think that if you look at the media of the 20th century, which is often romanticized, you know, you had these big media companies excluding people and spewing lies all day, much of the time. And so... You know, and so, but I, and I think, but I also think that there was like a utopianism about, you know, about this new online media and about social media that I certainly, you know, felt and was part of. But that I think, you know, it's not that we didn't see that it had a dark side, but I think we we misunderstood the balance. And I think, specific, particularly, you know, the appeal of a certain kind of like performative politics and performative extremism really is, is what I wrote about the extent to which somebody who, you know, really wanted attention could get, get, could get a lot of loops on vine by pouring, um, like by pouring gallons of milk on his head that for him, it was also totally logical to start tweeting anti-Semitic things because he was getting a lot of engagement from Nazis. You've kind of reflecting on your own part in all of that. There's a line in, in the piece where, you mentioned Jonah Peretti like talking with Steve Bannon and Steve Bannon saying something along the lines of he learned a lot from BuzzFeed and kind of BuzzFeed's model of getting attention to its content. Um, how cognizant were you of all of that when you were at BuzzFeed or even before that when you were at Politico? Yeah, that was specifically, it was from Josh Green's um, biography of Bannon. It was about him having looked over Huffington Post, not BuzzFeed, when he was a banker actually, and having looked at sort of presentations, I guess, from Huffington Post and thought about Jonah and what he was doing and kind of learned, taken that to Breitbart. Um, by the way, you know, Breitbart was one of the founders, Andrew Breitbart was one of the founders of HuffPost, although he was tossed out pretty early. But I think, you know, these things are intertwined and there's a sort of democratization that from the left and from the right and from, you know, the digital media carried. And I think, you know, it, created these incredible opportunities to do what I think was a lot of great journalism that I think it sometimes blinded us to the, just how serious the downsides were. I mean, again, not that, you know, not that we had the power to, I mean, I don't want to overstate this, 
you know, and suggest that like, well, if only we, you know, that, that if only we had kept, you know, never let that genie out, that we who worked in digital media had that kind of power. You know, I don't think that's quite, that's quite right. Um, but I do think there was, you know, that we could have been more aware of, of the, just of the kind of darker side of a lot of this. And I think the plat, I mean, the platforms, I would say, bear the, the bulk of this responsibility. Um, but, you know, it's a, um, it's a complicated, I mean, this sort of, this kind of retrospection is complicated. After I wrote that piece, I got an email from a woman who had worked at Corning Glass and been part of the team that um, created uh, this very um, thin, hard glass that, that has allowed essentially ubiquitous screens that you have in your iPhone, but also, you know, screens everywhere. And they really thought that like, wow, we're going to, with this kind of touchscreen gla- glass that can survive in the wild, like we're going to just put sort of information and beauty at everybody's fingertips ever. And this is this unambiguously positive development. And obviously it didn't, it didn't exactly work out that way. And I, I mentioned that, um, I mentioned that I, I sent that, I shared that email with a colleague who, who, whose response was, wow, everyone wants to blame themselves except for the people who actually deserve blame. So, <laughs> I don't know. How does that experience like being at, you know, BuzzFeed and you all, you know, got so savvy at social distribution, but now like you were able to see kind of the dark side of that too, or how, like what you were able to do for pretty benign ends could be used for malicious ends. How does that now inform the reporting you're doing at the times? You know, we were, I think I was increasingly aware of it at BuzzFeed. I mean, we were, because we were swimming in those waters, we were very quick to see the rise of the alt-right and we covered the hell out of it in 2014, 2015 in particular. We exposed Milo and ended his career. We were very attentive to it. Um, and I, But I do think that, you know, I didn't see as clearly in some sense the balance that I was really, that we were trying to strike, which was you could always, you know, with news, there was always obviously, if, if you had wanted, you could see this and we would never do this, but I don't think we even spoke to ourselves this clearly about it, but that, you know, often the more viral version of the story would just be the false one. And so there was always a temptation to jump on whatever tweet was most viral and write it as though it was true. Um, We didn't, I think we did a pretty good job resisting that temptation, but I'm not sure we sort of, at least I was not maybe cynical enough to realize that that platform, that somebody was going to fill that gap and that the platforms welcomed it. And like now, specifically right now in this past week, there's all this talk about deplatformization. Um, you know, Twitter suspending Donald Trump's account. Um, you know, now that yesterday, like Sasha Baron Cohen was talking about um, calling for YouTube to take down you know Donald Trump's account, and then there's you know also all the talk around all of the alt right you know publications um, or you know the, some of the different platforms that are using these other platforms or something like Amazon Web Services or Shopify to be making money. How are you looking at this whole wave? Because on the one hand, it, it feels whack-a-mole. Like, okay, you can have Facebook, Twitter, YouTube try to remove these bad actors, but they're still going to find some way. Like, they're still the open web. They're still email. They're still text messaging. The, um, I think that's, you know, the, like, I feel like this, that we've been talking about this stuff for years and 
all these decisions got compressed into a week because the, basically the way corporate America works is the risky, the risky posture is to be alone. And so Facebook moves and it suddenly Twitter moves and suddenly, you know, Olive Garden, not Olive Garden, actually, that was parody, but suddenly a bunch of other companies you would not have expected are there because there's sort of straight, there's sort of safety in numbers in, in kind of the corporate world. Um, and I think there's just an enormous amount to untangle. I mean, Again, this is a huge missed up, sort of historic and tragic missed opportunities for these companies over the, the the social media companies over the last ten years to have had moderation policies. I mean, I think and you look back, and I think Reddit was honestly the one that got it right or most right. Um, Snap has done a better job than the others, um, but you know now they're trying to put the genie back in the bottle. But it's not five years ago they've created this hu- these huge communities that now can migrate to Telegram in particular. Um, and then I, now I think the question is, you know, are they going to keep doing this just sort of, as you say, ad hoc, whack-a-mole, hey, you know what, we just sort of made up a rule against inciting an insurrection because that's obviously bad and we want a rule against that. Um, or, or do you see some more formalized self-regulation where they have real policies? Facebook has talked about having this review board be something real. It could become something real. Um, or do you have government regulation sort of superseding all that, presumably coming from European governments, not from the United States government, I would think. Um, but I think, I think the question of, is this transparent and systematic or is it PR driven whack-a-mole, you know, is, 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 is wide open, but also so the genie, so much of the genie is out of the bottle. And the, and I think in some sense, the sort of pure social media era is over. There are these, you know, new encrypted platforms that, that, are going to be much harder to see inside and for journalists, for anybody. But on the other hand, you know, a lot of people who were happily consuming QAnon content on Facebook were also on Facebook to see their grandkids and, you know, the local weather and the sports team and aren't going to migrate to Telegram. So it is going to, it's a very different world where you have a harder core of very, you know, militants on Telegram. I mean, it's a different world. It's also much of the rest of the world. Um, but also the, um, you know, but, but then, but then less of that, I guess, on the mainstream platforms, but I don't know. I don't think this stuff is decided at all. It seems like they are just in totally reactive, um, mode. But you think we are in like a different era or the start of a different era when it comes to the social platforms? Yeah, I mean, I think the social platforms, the pure social platforms had been losing altitude already to TikTok in particular, which isn't really a social platform. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, I do think, I mean, I was thinking about Baked Alaska, this ex-BuzzFeed guy, and I do think, you know, Twitter, because he, because Twitter was the platform he moved to from Vine, he became a Nazi. And I'm sure that he was, he had, who knows what he actually thinks or people like that think, like, I don't think that's that interesting, but, um, but you know what, if TikTok had been around then, he would have been doing weird dances and like better that. I mean, I think that there is a slice of these kind of radicals who are really just performing for whatever music is playing. And, and to the degree that that's, there aren't incentives on Twitter and Facebook for that. And meanwhile, over on, on TikTok, there are incentives for cliff diving, like God bless. Is it, do you feel like it's easy to identify who's doing it for performative reasons and who's doing it for nefarious or other reasons? Oh, I don't think there's any distinction at all. Who cares? Who knows? I don't think people who are doing it even really know. And so, I mean, with 
all of the conversation in the past week, really the you know, past few months since the election. What, how do you see 2021 shaping up for the media industry and for like news publishers in particular? Um, you know, I think, I think that subscription publishers have the wind at their, I mean, I think that there's, it's, it's different organizations are in very different places. And I think there's often a sort of conflation of lots of different things to say, well, the news business is perpetually in trouble and perpetually in decline. And I mean, I think the thing is the newspaper business, which employs more journalists than anything else. And is this, you know, central part of American life is in huge trouble and in perpetual decline because they are basically in the business of printing newspapers. And that's not a good business anymore. People don't want print newspapers and they haven't. And for a number of reasons that, you know, you can have another podcast about local news, is the, the sort of local online news, you can't replicate that old local print business that America had. Um, and that's this incredibly troubling and challenging place, the sort of metro newspaper. And you see all sorts of different things happening, whether it's sort of nonprofits funded by the kind of city, you know, the sort of people who used to give to the ballet, or whether it's sort of more radical experiments like Outlier in Detroit. I think there's interesting stuff happening, but that's sort of one bucket. I think big national and and national subscription outlets and very niche subscription outlets down to individual substacks, you know, really have the wind at their back. Just people are, more and more people are paying for stuff on the internet and being trained by Netflix and Spotify to do that and by the New York Times. And I think you know, that's just a growth. There's, you know, if you've got a bunch of digital subscribers this year, you ought to be able to get some more next year because it's a just a growing, you know, the, there's a rising tide. And then I think that, um, you know, the, like a lot of companies, you know, in this spring, I mean, certainly including my old employer, BuzzFeed, um, you know, saw the, when the pandemic hit, really just cut very, very deeply and aggressively. And it was, it was you know, a horrible thing to have to go through, um, but have emerged in pretty strong financial shape this year. I think the kind of digital, and the one, the businesses BuzzFeed and Wirecutter at the times that depend on e-commerce have like, you know, found that, you know, this massive su- surge toward digital consumption has meant for these pure digital publications has been great for them. So I don't know. It's, I think a lot of these, these places are in better shape than they would have expected to be. But then some are, but then, you know, the ones that were on the way down are probably further down the, further down, through further down that death spiral than you would have expected. Do you see differences in the cost cutting at the companies like, you know, BuzzFeed, Vox Media, like younger companies or companies who establish their business models within digital versus, I mean, there's been cost cutting going on at local newspapers, TV networks. There were a lot of layoffs, unfortunately, um, at the various TV network groups last year. And they're in a similar position to like the local newspapers where they've come to rely on, you know, the affiliate revenue, the money that they get from the different pay TV providers that carry their channels. And, that money's going away. Um, so they have to like get their costs in line with that, but they seem really reticent or they aren't, they don't seem as willing to make as drastic cuts as Buzzfeed Vox and the others made last year. And I I don't know if that's just, you know, I think there, I think there are different, there are different things going on in different businesses. Right. I think, you know, like these NBC just routinely managing its balance sheet every year does around a layoffs basically. Um, but I know, but I think basically, you know, for Vox, for BuzzFeed, for places like that, 
um, and there aren't that many left for the surviving pure digital outlets, you know, their audience didn't go away. Their audience grew. People moved closer to the internet. People moved more toward the kind of, you know, what places like Vox and BuzzFeed have to offer over the last year, not less. And so although the advertising business was down for a bit, but now seems to be back up, the their audience didn't go away. It grew. And I think what's at, what you see with these print publications is people continue to move away from print. Like this is not a brand, you know, as, as they have been for the last 20 years. And that's not reversible. And so I think those, I think sometimes people kind of, conf- when you saw these horrible waves of layoffs last year, I think people kind of conflated the, you know, the digital companies kind of trying just to gut out this difficult period, but still maintaining this very tight connection with a huge audience and print co- and newspapers that are in, you know, secular decline and it's not fixable. You mentioned subscriptions. When you're at BuzzFeed, why didn't you all make a big subscription play? Um, you know, BuzzFeed's DNA is so much of the open web. Like it's so much in our, and I don't want to like, I don't think companies, like companies have principles, you know, like it's not like it's a, it's not like they're human beings. Um, and often you say something and the situation changes and you don't want, and I'm not saying they shouldn't ever go behind. I mean, I don't know, like this is Jonah's decision. I'm not there anymore, but certainly the kind of whole mission and DNA of Buzzfeed was to live on the open web. It had a huge advertising business, a huge commerce business. Um, and I think Jonah really saw, and I saw the mission as being part of this wide open conversation and helping an audience, helping guide an audience through it, not to sort of pull the audience back into your your walled garden. And I think it's actually hard for institutions to go very, hard, you know, to go in, to to like run against their own identities. It's you could imagine kind of rebuilding BuzzFeed as a subscription product or BuzzFeed News as a subscription product. And I think there are within BuzzFeed opportunities to do that, and within Vox opportunities to do that. But I think like these are creatures really of the open web and of the social web, and I think. There's an additional layer, which is that, you know, Facebook and Google and need, and I mean, one of the things that a paywall is, is an attack on Google and an attack on Facebook. Like if I post a Digiday link to my Facebook page, my friends can't read it. So I'm not going to do that. And that, and, and if you're Facebook, that's content that you can't have. Same with the New York Times link a lot of the time. And I think BuzzFeed, as these other outlets pulled away from those platforms, we saw an opportunity there and developed, among other things, very strong business relationships with them. For anyone listening who is friends with Ben on Facebook, and if he does post a Digiday link, you get, I think, four free articles before we will ask you to pay. So feel free to share those Digiday <laughs> links on Facebook. <laughs> no, I'll get um, With BuzzFeed, like BuzzFeed News, that was your baby. And BuzzFeed News was really successful from an editorial perspective, but there were always challenges on the business side, even, you know, when I was recently talking to some ad buyers um, after the HuffPost acquisition news went out, they were saying like BuzzFeed News like still hasn't established a brand in advertisers. They still don't think of BuzzFeed as a place for news or why they should be buying BuzzFeed News. Why was it such a challenge to build a business or to get BuzzFeed news to be sustainable on its own? Or was that the, I assume that was the goal. You know, it wasn't, I mean, it was not initially the goal. Like, I mean, as in a lot of venture bad companies, the goal was growth and, and sort of building a big brand. I think we did that. Um, you know, obviously 
there's lots of things that you think back and wish you wish you'd done sooner in particular. And I think I do think that, you know, the ad, I mean the online advertising business for news is a huge challenge. And I think that where we where we were our sort of biggest successes were taking the brand places that were not were not straight ahead display advertising on the internet. And I think, you know, you see probably see that with Vox too. We, you know, we did this um I think my favorite of these deals was a morning show that we produced on Twitter that I think that's in a different form continuing still going. Um, you know, that was, that was an ad, and it was an advertising based deal because it was Twitter, but Twitter and Twitter was selling the ads into Twitter's ad products. But we, um, but all, but you know, but what we brought was this real connection to have the news spreads on Twitter and ability to talk to people on that platform in a native way. Um, and that was, a, that was a good, that was a, that was a really good business for us. So I think we were, I think we tried to find opportunities where that, that made sense for us rather than, uh, yeah, not, not, not that we weren't trying to sell ads and not that, you know, ultimately, like, I guess our pitch as I recall in, in various ways was that, you know, we're reaching this like, you know, young, educated crowd. I mean, I, but I think that at the, the advertisers reluctance to advertise against news is this much deeper problem and a huge kind of social problem broadly that these that these big ad, big brands and big advertisers like to talk about their social responsibility and ultimately have done really everything in their power to undermine the news business and you know, and really not in any way particularly limited to BuzzFeed I think across the internet right or they do things like boycott Facebook for 30 days act like everything is fixed and fine yeah now. and they have these sort of high they have these highfalutin talking points when actually they could be advertising on the New York Times or Vox or BuzzFeed or, you know, Digiday or really something with some kind of redeeming social quality. Um, or they could be advertising, they could just be sort of shoveling the money to Facebook and Google. And, you know, it doesn't really matter what you say in your press release about your values. What like all they do is spend money on marketing and they put their money where their mouth is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Forget there was um, someone I spoke to years ago. I think this was after the YouTube um, boycott. Um, and when that all flared up and that person was talking about news on TV and advertisers being more comfortable with that because you can't screenshot that. There isn't the fear of someone taking a shot of an ad being right next to a piece of, you know, controversial content and putting that on. Yeah. And it's very much, I mean, if you know, you cover the industry and I think it's very much about the sort of risk averse culture of big institutions that if you're the sort of like stressed, you know, account manager making decisions and you, you, these places have all had layoffs and you have way too much work and not enough time. And your like career is on the line. If you buy an ad on some website where it might show up next to a story about something bad that happened. I mean, it's this huge, it's this, and you're afraid you're going to get yelled at by your boss or that the CMO of the other company will get tweeted at, of your client is going to get tweeted at and you'll be in trouble. And it's just idiotic. But ultimately, it's the people at the top of those organizations who have created that culture. Also with BuzzFeed News, like you all did, again, a lot of really solid journalism. But one thing that always stuck out to me was the way the journalism was presented was largely like pretty traditional. You had things like AM to DM. But when it comes to like, I remember the um, tennis match fixing story when that came out and that was a big story, but it was also like a really big story in terms of a lot of blocks of text and thinking why hasn't Buzzfeed figured out a way to make long form more digestible, maybe isn't the right word, but 
you basically package it up in a way that's more accessible, Enter- not entertaining necessarily, but just you get people to watch, you know, people blow up a watermelon for hours on end. You can get people to you know, read a 3000 word investigation. You know, it's interesting because I definitely, and, and I mean, there are in, infinite conversations in this industry about kind of reinventing the form in which stories are told. And I wound up thinking that different stories should have different forms, that if you're going to, if you are producing a big investigation where you're hoping to sort of, you know, get government officials fired and bring bring accountability, there's a certain kind of familiarity to the like, people want a level of seriousness and a, and a and sort of an, a sort of sense and feel that this is a really serious piece of work that is being kind of dropped on the desk and making a bang when it hits. Um, and, and, and you can certainly then try to find forms of it where you essentially aggregate yourself and create, you know, interesting, spin out interesting pieces of media from it. Um, but I also think that having experimented with this a lot, when you're doing a big investigation, you should make it feel to people like it's a big investigation, not like it's a joke. And then conversely, when you are making a list of memes, you should make it a really fun list of memes, not do the thing that the Times still kind of does, which is like, there is this thing called memes, and we would not expect you to laugh (laughs) at memes. However, in the course of explaining memes, we will show you a bunch of funny memes, and perhaps you will laugh. Um, You know, and and we never did that at BuzzFeed either. I think we, you know, we, our, our view was like, if, you know, if what we're doing is a big investigation, let's package it as a big, serious investigation. If what we were doing is something extremely silly, let's package it as something extremely silly. So I think that, I think that, you know, in some ways, the sort of medium and the message need to align, but you need to have the muscles to do both. Also, speaking about BuzzFeed, there's all the talk around these special purpose acquisition companies right now. And, you know, it seems like that's becoming the gateway for exits for a lot of these VC-backed companies. Although it really just seems like a way for a BuzzFeed or a Group 9 to just pay off the existing, like to cash out their existing investors so they don't have those VCs kind of hounding them for what the exit strategy is going to be. What's your read on all this? And with the disclosure that you still have a stake in BuzzFeed. You know, I don't. I don't have any special knowledge, and I, I did. I did. I, Jessica Lesson was from the information was tweeting about specs the other day, and I did call her up to ask her what they were, and I don't really understand <laughs> still. And I, I yeah, so I don't. I don't think that I'm. Um, I'm, I'm. I'm not your guy on this one. It does. It, it seems like. Yeah, I, I mean, it's. I don't. I, you know what? I don't. I don't even understand them well enough to make jokes about them, and so I will not. The. I mean, the specs. Yeah, I mean, the specs are kind of just emerging as one potential exit for a lot of these companies in the same way that uh, an NBC Universal could be an exit or, you know, seems like bustles an exit for a lot of folks over the past few years. Do you see these media, these VC-backed media companies under any new urgency to exit? You know, I think it's complicated. I mean, I think that you know, there was this feeling, I remember the conventional wisdom maybe six or eight months ago was these companies were all going to collapse. And now it's that they're all going to engage in these sort of financial engineering. Um, it, it, I think that they are under, in some ways, less pressure than they were because they, they're they saying that they're, they've all, and I haven't you know seen any of their internal numbers, but these companies claim to be profitable. And, you know, the pressure, which removes the, you're about to run out of money and go out of business pressure. Um 
but but on but on the other hand, right? They've they've raised a lot of money at high valuations. They've had they've got investors who've been around for a while. All these companies, and so there's a there's kind of a restlessness to um yeah to do to do something. But I don't know. I don't want to make it's, it seems like making predictions these days is a bad idea in general. Right. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I mentioned and you mentioned in your your column this week that you know you still have a stock options in BuzzFeed. And so because of that, there are times it's required you not um, cover BuzzFeed extensively in your column. Um, are there also limits in place around like what you can be reporting around BuzzFeed competitors or something like the MNA market for media companies like BuzzFeed? You know, that's really a question for, in some ways, for, for the Times, not for me. Like, I, it's something I'm in conversation with them about, and I do what they say. Got it. Um, the HuffPost talks, like those started when you were still at BuzzFeed. So I imagine you were involved you, in that. You know, I was not. It kills me. I, you know, it was an idea. I don't know if they started while I was there. I can't remember, actually. But, I mean, it was a, it was a you know, Jonah had founded, co-founded HuffPost. And so it was a conversation. It was an idea that had been, we'd been kicking around for a while. But, um, but no, I, I, it to- I, I learned of it from what did the journal break the story, and just I was flabbergasted. Partly because um, Samantha Hennig, who's a senior BuzzFeed exec now, who I worked very closely with, is also like my next door neighbor, and I had felt like she was avoiding me, and I hadn't heard from Joan in a while, and I think that they were just like, we cannot let Ben find out anything about this, and they totally succeeded in that. I had, even though I'm like, these are all people I consider friends and know quite well, but um. Yeah, no, I was totally, totally blindsided. I think I don't think they thought I would write about it, but I'm just like a gossip, and they didn't want me like going around gossiping about it. I assume. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, because I think um, like right after it was announced, Jonah was on the Code Media podcast with Peter Kafka and mentioned something about how even before this, you know, the latest round of talks started last January, that ultimately led to the deal. Um, that he had reached out to Verizon to see if HuffPost was set for sale. I don't remember if it was in. This would have been in. Yeah, I think. I, yeah, that, I, I knew about that, but I think the answer then was was basically no. Or I don't know. I can't. I don't remember the details, yeah. but it obviously didn't happen then. I knew. I knew it was an idea that Jonah liked, and I liked. I liked the idea. Actually, I think it was a good idea. But it, yeah, I know yeah. I was totally, totally blindsided and felt like an idiot. You know, like I'm the media columnist for the New York Times, and also I just left that place and just got totally blindsided by the kind of. You know that the, the scoop of the year on that particular subject. Right. Uh, why did you like the idea, and, and was your idea also to have basically two newsrooms within the same media company, or were you thinking of some way to combine BuzzFeed News and HuffPost into one? No, there's no point combining them. I mean, again, I'm I'm really on the outside now. Like, I, I'm not. I'm just speaking as a somebody looking with the same amount of knowledge of this that you have, um, but. No, there's no point combining them. HuffPost has this big audience that isn't that, that doesn't overlap a bunch a whole lot with BuzzFeeds, and I think there's always been this, you know, one of the ver- one of the many, and all these. Me- I feel like these metaphors between analog and digital media are often pretty imperfect, but you know, there's always been this kind of like build the Condé Nast of digital idea, and I think that's in some sense that's what Nick Denton was trying to do with the Gawker Media Group, um, but the idea that you, you know, that you can both get more reach and find a bunch of, you know, not of not not editorial efficiencies, by the way, tech and support efficiencies around having a bunch of different really robust brands under the same company is obviously not like a 
Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, the thing about the media business, right? It's not, they were not like trading credit default swaps here. Like Viacom owns a bunch of TV channels, like makes sense. You know, it's, and it's not a, um, and, and there are certain advantages you get with in relation to your distributors and your advertisers and all those things from, from that kind of scale. And I think, you know, when you, when there's a deal that makes sense for a huge brand that, that by the way, the founder knows really well, it, I think it was sort of a no brainer. So lastly, without getting in the world of predictions, but I've heard you talk about a lesson you picked up from, I think it was Peter Kaplan, uh, about how media journalism is you know, like basically taking, you know, touching live wires together. You have the live wire of media and kind of the live wire of any other business sector. You've done a lot of that since, you know, coming to the Times about a year ago and, you know, touching media with tech, with politics. Um, are there any live wires out there that you haven't touched yet but are looking to? Ooh, I don't know. I hope your audience will tell me. I mean, you know, I do certainly, there are industries I know better and worse. I actually haven't written much about the advertising industry. And if there's a, if, if somebody's listening, has got a tip, please, please email me. It's ben.smith at NY Times. Don't, don't email your friends at Digiday. Email me um, if you've got a scoop. But um, the, uh, yeah, no, I think, but I do think as, as in general, you know, the media business it's a boring business. It's not like, again, it's, I mean, I think some of the technical things are interesting, but on the advertising side, often I think like the creative is really interesting. I think what you're seeing in Hollywood right now is that, you know, I mean, these apps, even Netflix, these are not the most sophisticated pieces of engineering in the history of the world. And if the content on them sucks, people do not want to consume it. But but when you make hits that people are obsessed with, people consume it. I think, I actually think that sort of, that realization is sort of gradually dawning again on people, and um, it, which which means that I don't know as, that I, I think that for me it's it's the places where media and the media business touch other things people care about that are the most interesting. I mean, lately for better and for worse politics, of course. That will continue to be the case. All right, Ben Smith, thanks for taking the time. Yeah, thanks for having me on. And thank you for listening to the Digiday Podcast. Please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. You can even rate us on Apple Podcasts if you like. And we'll be back next week with another episode. Mm-hmm.